1: and Cape Talk. The
2: Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris.
1: Hello, Eusebius. Good morning. Are you well? I think so. You know, it's really cold (laughs) here today. It's really, really cold and frosty. It's almost like it's it's Graham's town in winter type cold here. Ah, I know all about my childhood. Oh, yes. (laughs) Did you have time, by the way, for your cup of tea experiment? No, not yet, because I only just got back from, I was away in Spain last week. So um, we're still experimenting, but the laboratory is heating up the kettle as I speak. So yes, I will have an answer (laughs) for you, but I I do need to do the experiment properly uh, rather than in a rush. I haven't forgotten. Don't worry, we're going to do this and uh, we'll get an answer before Easter, and that's critical because there's, okay. there's a little announcement coming around Easter time too, which, which I know people are yes, going to like, but we'll that. reveal that yeah. at Easter time.
2: Okay, let's start with our science story of the week. This is a new word for me. Organoids. What are those?
1: Organoid. Yeah. In the journal Science, organoid. Okay. Organoid. In the journal science this week is a, a paper by researchers at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. It's about cancer, and it's a new way to work out what the best treatment for people who have cancer will be. Now, when you are diagnosed with cancer, one way to treat it is what's called chemotherapy. You give people drugs and those drugs attack the tumour. You hope that they attack the tumour more than they attack the healthy tissue in your body because that minimises side effects. But cancer can evolve and it can also become resistant to treatment. So in order to know whether it's going to respond to the treatment you want to give, you need to know if if it's sensitive to the drugs in the first place. Now, at the moment, the only way we do that is you give people the drugs and then you find out if they get better. But the problem is that means there's a big delay and you could be treating them with things that will make them better in the meantime. So what Nicola Valerie and his colleagues have done is that they have been able to take biopsies, small samples of people's tumours, and not just the primary tumour, but the metastases, this is where the tumour has spread to other parts of the body, From those biopsies, they're able to grow tiny, as in a fifth of a millimetre across, mini cancers in the dish in the laboratory, and they can make thousands of these, and they can then test them against a panel of more than 50 to 100 drugs to see which drugs the cancer cells will definitely respond to and which ones they might not respond to, and this can then be used to inform what drugs give the patient and therefore whether or not the person's likely to have a good outcome. And in their trials, uh, in initial tests, comparing real-life patients with samples in the dish They can tell with 99% certainty that a patient won't respond to a cancer drug, so don't give them that drug, it won't work. They can tell with 90% accuracy whether or not a drug will work in that patient. So these are really good numbers. Up until now, it's been very hit and miss. Now we can actually make a much more surgical decision about what we want to treat a cancer with, and this will dramatically improve the likelihood of success, And it will also minimize the number of people being exposed to very expensive drugs that don't always work in them and will have side effects.
2: That's a stunning development. We're going to take our first question today, Chris, from Twitter. Elvin says Can you please ask the naked scientist to explain the science behind how a plane takes off, flies in the air without falling?
1: Okay, so effectively, this question is How does a wing work? Because the thing that holds an aeroplane up in the air is its wings. And. The best way to think about this is to consider what Isaac Newton taught us three or four hundred years ago. Newton pointed out in his third law that for every action there's an equal opposite reaction. So if the wing is generating force upwards something else must be being pushed downwards. That thing is air. As the aeroplane flies through the air if you look at the shape of the wing you'll see it's curved and it's higher at the front than it is at the back. So put simply Air is pushed down as it goes over the wing, and if you push the air down, it pushes back on the wing with the same force, giving the wing lift. Now, that's the net effect, but people will then say, But hang on a minute, Um, what about when an aeroplane flies upside down? Well, when an aeroplane flies upside down, you'll see that what the pilot craftily does is actually adopt what we call a very high angle of attack. The aeroplane will fly crab wise almost, it's got its nose right up in the air, so even though the wing is a bit the wrong shape it's still nonetheless pushing air from front to back in the downwards direction, giving the plane force upwards. So the simplest way to think about this is a wing generates lift by pushing air downwards and backwards, and this means the air pushes back on the wing upwards and forwards, and that generates the lift for the aircraft. And when it's going along on a runway, what it's doing is it gaining enough speed, so there's enough air being pushed downwards by the wing, To create the sufficient force that will lift in some cases five hundred tons of aeroplane and passengers and fuel and cargo off of the runway, get it into the air. Once it's flying, it's relatively easy. All you've got to do is to keep making sure the plane continues to fly by burning fuel to offset the air resistance because you're doing work pushing the atmosphere out of the way and that takes effort. When you're coming into land, what you're doing is a controlled loss of energy, you're slowing the aeroplane down, you're gaining control in, and, and losing altitude by slowing the aeroplane down and losing lift, but you're doing it in a slow way, so it comes down at a very controlled rate, and you're aiming to hit the ground, not too hard, but in such a way that you're not going too fast that you can't then slow the aeroplane down to stop it. One way you stop it is by putting the brakes on, on the wheels, but also with jet engines which are throwing air from the front of the plane backwards to generate the thrust you can also redirect the airflow in the engine so that it sucks air in at the front and then blows it back out forwards again and that throws air in the opposite direction to the direction the plane is trying to go in and that effectively creates reverse thrust and that slows the airplane down so when you hear them rev the engines right up as you touch down that is the pilot throwing air the wrong way to help him to decelerate or her to decelerate the airplane.
2: You're listening to the naked scientists. Call us if you have a question. Paul, also, good morning. Morning, uh, Chris. Morning, uh, Eusebius. My question is why do feathers usually have brighter colors than uh, animals say? So you, you find pink uh, uh, feathers and, and, and blue sometimes. And how do animals know that they come up with their surrounding area? Do they see color?
1: What a lovely question, or series of questions, mm. so uh, a whole mixed bag colourful. of things there. I- indeed, a colourful question. So where do feathers get their colour from, why are they coloured, and can animals perceive colour? The answer is that birds can perceive colour, they have exceptionally good vision and an exceptionally good colour discrimination. So birds definitely can see the colours of other birds. Birds use colour in two different ways. In some instances they use colour for camouflage. And if you consider some animals that have to sit on a nest for a long time, a duck is a really good example. The female duck looks a very drab, dull colour because she needs to blend into her surroundings because she is quite literally a sitting duck. She's sitting on her duck's nest incubating her eggs. She needs to blend into the background. The male duck, on the other hand, this is British ducks, but other ducks true as well. They are brightly coloured. They can get away, they can fly off, they don't have to worry about sitting on a nest. They have to worry about attracting a female and persuading her they're worth having sex with and then sitting on the nest for ages and risking her life for their genes. So the males use colour to attract a mate. They do it by a range of different ways. Some animals put colour into their feather with with what's called structural colour and what you do there is that you change the nanostructure of the particles that are in the filaments that make up the feather so that they interact with light of certain colours or wavelengths so that some colours are reflected, others are absorbed and that gives them their colour. Other birds, vultures are a good example, also add colour to their skin and if you look at vultures they add carotenoids to the skin around their head and this makes them very red And they do that to uh, look aggressive, look big, look macho, attract females and deter predators and deter animals that might be competitors with them. So there's a whole range of reasons why animals use these colours. There's a whole range of ways in which they make these colours. And the answer to where they get them from in the first place is they have evolved like that. Animals by chance have managed to arrive at solutions that endowed them with certain colour patterns If they help them to disguise themselves and not be eaten, they're more likely to be successful, mate more often and have more offspring, and those offspring will inherit those same traits. If they have the wrong colour decision in their genetic makeup and they look bright and they're bright red in a green environment, they're going to stand out like a sore thumb, get eaten a lot, they won't have many offspring, and those genes that make them the wrong colour will disappear. So this is a classic example of, of evolution by natural selection. Louis, good morning
2: to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning, uh, Chris. Good morning, Eusebius. The Big Bang theory says, states that it's everything started from a single point and through presence and temperatures, all our elements of the periodic table was created. If we take all those elements and we somehow combine them in a temperature-controlled environment, what will we get, or is it possible to calculate that mathematically?
1: If I may slightly correct you, the Big Bang, which we... Think, by and large, happened about 13.8 billion years ago. This didn't produce all of the elements that you see in the periodic table. What it did produce is a very large amount of hydrogen, ultimately. Initially, it it was too hot for things to form hydrogen, but shortly after the Big Bang, we got a lot of hydrogen, we got a little bit of helium, and we got a whiff, just a trace of lithium. And those are the, uh, the first three elements in the periodic table, and they're the only ones that can actually be formed easily, by the processes that led to the combinations of protons and uh, electrons that can produce simple elements. Any bigger than lithium, and you start to need much more complicated processes. And those complicated processes include one called nucleosynthesis and other things which can go on in destructive explosions like the mergers of big stars and supernova explosions. You need the fierce conditions when the first stars, which were burning hydrogen, blew themselves to pieces or, in their cores, squeeze things together very hard to make the rest of the elements in the periodic table that are not made here on Earth. We've got some man-made elements in the periodic table that we've made in nuclear reactors, but the naturally occurring elements, anything bigger than lithium, is the product of a star. So it's quite a sobering thought that uh, the elements in your body, with the exception of the hydrogen and the helium and the lithium, those elements have all come from some star that was born burned, died and blew itself to pieces and in some cases other stars like neutron stars as we now understand merging together and making new elements and then blasting those elements out into the universe they eventually about four and a half billion years ago coalesced where our solar system is formed our solar system and the clutch of planets around our star, our sun and some of those elements have ended up in you which I think is a really quite sobering thought Um, but in terms of, of what's out there the mass of the universe is proportional to the energy that was unleashed in the Big Bang or uh, was converted from energy into mass after the Big Bang because E equals mc squared. E energy equals m mass times the speed of light squared. That's Einstein's famous equation, and it it explains how energy and mass are interchangeable. 702 and Cape Talk.
2: The Naked Scientist. Let's take a couple more of your questions. Anne, good morning. Good morning, Eusebius. Hope you're having a nice day so far. Please, a quick question. Otherwise, I'll listen to it on the radio. Uh, has Chris ever heard of the magic cure of the rind of a lemon? You take the lemon, you wash the lemon, then you put it in a bag in your deep freeze. And when the, uh, the lemon, uh, when it's hot, uh, you grate it, and you take a teaspoon of this every day. Now they say it cures more cancer cells than
1: chemo. Have you ever heard of it? Because it's just going around and around for months and months and months and months. If I'm being completely honest with you, if something sounds too good to be true, it almost always is too good to be true. If it were that simple, then the share price of anyone who owned a lemon tree farm would be huge, because a third of the world population will be affected directly themselves by cancer at some point in their lives. And the fact that we're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars, pounds, rand, however you want to define it, every year trying to solve these problems shows you that this is not as simple as merely a lemon. Now, people have been eating lemons in various forms for thousands to millions of years. And there's not really any evidence that cancer rates are appreciably different in individuals that do and don't eat lemons. If the lemon were having a serious anti-cancer effect or a cancer curative effect, we would expect that people who had lemons in their diet would have a deficit of cancer in their family doesn't happen so i don't think that it's it's biochemically plausible um it's certainly possibly good for you to eat uh, citrus fruit it's got vitamins in it it's got various other things in it and those are going to help to contribute towards a healthy lifestyle and a healthy lifestyle contributes towards a lower rate of cancer overall but i don't think you can argue there's anything special about a frozen lemon rind that you've grated off and eaten um, apart from it tasting good under certain circumstances that will necessarily reduce your risk of dying of cancer including if you already have succumbed to cancer.
2: Sorry, Anne. Now, good morning. Good morning, Sirius. This has been worrying me for some time. Man. Uh, I want to know why if I lose my teeth at the age of 17, those teeth doesn't come back. But if I lose a nail, it'll come back.
1: Yes, indeed. Don't we all wish that we could get back missing teeth, apart from your milk teeth, of course? Um, the answer to this is that genetically you're programmed to have two sets of dentition in your lifetime your dentition are your teeth you have your primary or deciduous dentition those are your milk teeth you're you're born you they, they appear shortly after you're born and then they are replaced by your adult or secondary dentition which begins to come in after the first few years of life and starts to push out your uh, primary dentition from maybe age seven or eight, uh, through to about mid-teenage, then all of your primary dentition's gone and you have to make those adult teeth last a lifetime. Now, the reason that the human body has decided to evolve like this is for a range of reasons. One, when we're first born, we're very small. We, we survive on breast milk and we don't need teeth. And if we did have teeth, and when we do have teeth, as any woman who's breastfed will tell you, it can be uncomfortable at times. And this is a deterrent towards carrying on breastfeeding for some people. So little babies that exist on milk don't have teeth because they don't need them. They have a very small jawbone which wouldn't accommodate big adult teeth which would also be energetically very hungry in terms of difficult to produce big teeth which you wouldn't need. So why not as a child produce smaller teeth that are more disposable and dispensable and as your jaw enlarges can be chucked away and space is now made for big teeth. Um, So that's the, the, the main point. The second point is that Why only have two sets of teeth? Well, we historically didn't live all that long. People living to the ripe old age they do now, they they stop actually having the ability to reproduce by about their mid-40s. And if you therefore have not got enough teeth into your 70s, there's no way of actually putting genes back into the population when you're 70 to influence having more teeth into old age. So we haven't evolved to have more teeth because they weren't helpful to us from a reproductive point of view to have more teeth. We had enough teeth to get us through to the age when we've had children and and then nature doesn't really care anymore. So that's why. Now fingernails are quite different. The way teeth are produced are by stem cells called odontoblasts that grow into your jaw and make, make teeth from a specific pattern of cells during your development and early years. Nails are produced from a different pattern of stem cells entirely, which has a nail plate and these stem cells produce the pattern of the nail and produce the keratin pro- the, the protein keratin, which is the structure or fabric of the nail, and it's made continuously through life. Teeth are quite different. They're made of a different material entirely. They're a mineralized protein. They've got a lot of uh, hydroxyapatite in them. And so they're, they're quite a different structure and quite a different composition. And teeth are not to be thrown away. Nails you can trim off.
2: Okay, Yes, uh, one from social media again. Donald wants to know,
1: racing pigeons, how do they find their way back home? No one knows for sure, but we do have some theories. What we've learned in recent years is that birds are very sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. And people have done various studies where you can actually magnetise a bird. So you put it into an apparatus where you apply a magnetic field which is Different to the Earth's magnetic field, in a different direction. And you can make the birds fly in the wrong direction. And what scientists think might be happening is that the birds look where the sun rises, which is always in the east, and they relate the time of the sunrise to what the Earth's magnetic field is doing, and they therefore have a, a visual compass. There is also a theory that there are pigments in the back of the eye, the retina, which are sensitive to the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. And birds may have these chemicals, called cryptochromes, in their eye, which mean that they perceive light slightly differently or with a slightly different intensity when they're flying at one orientation to the magnetic field compared to another. And this may enable them to navigate by using magnetic field lines. Certainly with pigeons, homing pigeons, other migratory birds, things like arctic terns, the way they're almost certainly doing this isn't just, just to rely on one thing alone, magnetism. They probably integrate a whole range of different information and cues to help them find their way around. But certainly magnetism is very important to them and they rely on this very much. But exactly how they detect it and how they're doing this at the moment, we don't know.
2: Taba, you get to ask the last question. Go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I'm fascinated by seahorses. I was told that uh, male seahorses give best Instead of female uh, seahorses. Now, I want to know if the male seahorse have both reproductive uh, organs or not, and what is the the logic? What's the science behind them um, male uh, having kids instead of female? Thank you very much. It's
1: yes, what an interesting question. Uh, the answer is that you're on the right lines. Seahorses, and there are some other other animals as well that do this, do nurture the young. What actually happens is they don't have both reproductive organs. The males are male, the females are female. But the female selects a healthy, fit male and she then adds to the male's body. He has a special appendage where he can carry her eggs. She puts her eggs into his body and he then fertilises them with his sperm and he then incubates, develops, nurtures and then releases the baby seahorses from those eggs. And um, it's a sort of interesting role reversal because we were talking earlier about ducks and how male ducks are a nice, bright colour. And the female ducks tend to be a more drab colour because they have to hide and sit on nests to incubate eggs. Well, in seahorses, the male... Uh, is going to be doing the egg carrying so actually he gets to choose which female he thinks is worth mating with because he's got to do the hard job of incubating the eggs and taking the risk of, of nurturing these offspring for a considerable period of time so the female has to go out of her way to impress the male in the seahorse world rather than the other way around in other instances so it's quite an interesting example of natural role reversal but the males are still definitely male the females are definitely female it's just the male that does the effectively looking after the baby role in this instance.
2: Chris, thanks so much. We'll do it again next week.
1: I'm already looking forward to
0: it. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.